Hello and welcome to Grazia Life Advice, Grazia's podcast. I'm Rhiannon and each week I'll be interviewing women worth listening to and getting them to pass on the six best pieces of advice they've ever been given and the worst piece too. This week our podcast is sponsored by The Economist and if you text podcast to 78070, that's podcast P-O-D-C-A-S-T to 78070 now, you can get a free copy. Our guest this week is journalist and Channel 4 News presenter Kathy Newman. After a decade on Fleet Street, Kathy moved to Channel 4 News in 2006, where she's become well known for her investigative scoops and interviewing expertise. Kathy's just released a book, Bloody Brilliant Women, which tells the stories of pioneering women who we may not know as much about as we should, women who may have been missed by the history books. We talked about her book and everything from combating worries to curly hair at her home in London last month. So, over to Kathy. I'm here with Kathy Newman in her lovely London home. How are you, Kathy? Very good. Yeah, a little bit rushed as normal in the morning. So <laughs> sorry to drag you away over here. Got a lot um, to fit in. That's yeah. absolutely fine. And um, because at the moment you're launching your book, Bloody Brilliant Women. Just tell us a little about the book. People have heard of it, obviously, because you know it's been everywhere. But tell us about it. Yeah, I feel I've been banging on about it for weeks now. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I'm boring everyone. But no. uh, Bloody Brilliant Women. The idea was that I had slightly sort of patchy history teaching at school Mm. so I felt like I ended up learning all about the Anglo-Saxons many many times and not much beyond Uh, so ever since then I've read massive history books Mm. about you know history of Britain in the 20th 20th century and reading one of these I discovered that there just weren't many women in them so you'd find the Queen and you know the suffragettes Agatha Christie and not much else So I just wondered what women had been doing in the 20th century in Britain. (laughs) (laughs) So I started researching and found out that they were doing quite incredible things. And these are the bloody brilliant women in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Did you enjoy the researching? Did it give you kind of, did it make you feel good about being a woman and everything we've been doing in the last century? Yeah, I mean, I should actually pay tribute to my husband for helping me out with the research Mm. because there was a lot to get through. Um, So enjoy um there was quite a lot of work over the last few years but yeah what I found really rewarding was discovering how many brilliant women there were Mm. in all sorts of fields so you might expect women to have excelled in education or the arts but actually there are amazing aeronautical engineers Mm. Beatrice Schillings in my book um without whom we probably wouldn't have won the Battle of Britain um, and, you know, women in science, Rosalind Franklin talking about today, um, structure of DNA. So women in all sorts of unexpected ways helped transform 20th century Britain. And, yeah, that felt really inspiring because for the next generation of women, you can point to all these women who achieved incredible things against great odds and say you can really do anything as a woman, anything you want to do. And when you saw the kind of things they'd achieved like bitch shilling were you surprised that they haven't been kind of noted before I mean that seems astounding really yeah I was really surprised and actually a little bit angry that Mm. so many women had had their achievements sort of airbrushed out I mean uh, one of the women in my book is Noor Inayat Khan and there's now a campaign to get her on the 50 pound note she's a, a British Muslim who spied for Britain during World War II And, you know, really quite a a phenomenal story. Mm. And, yeah, you know, there was a a film made about her, but I feel like it didn't really take off in the way that Hidden Figures, for example, took off. So I feel like now we're only just noticing these women who are are 
a major part of our heritage. Mm. Um, you know, Beatrice Schilling's a pub named after her in Hampshire, but that's about it. Oh. We don't really know. Um, you know, she should really be a household name, shouldn't, mm. shouldn't she, in the way that some of the men are. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it made me slightly angry, actually. <laughs> There's a lot of that going around. I'm trying to hold it in. Good. Um, so we're going to have your six best piece of advice. Mm-hmm. So we'll start off, um, and you said one from your dad, uh, which I love, which is just such a great piece of advice. Just turning up is half the battle. Mm. Yeah, I think I was quite a worrier as a mm. kid. I'm still quite a worrier. I've managed to keep it in control most of the time. But when I was little, I think I must have been worrying about an exam or something I had. And I remember my dad, who's a very calm, very sort of reassuring person, said to me, look, you know, half the battle is turning up to the exam room. Once you're there, you know, then you, you, there's nothing else you can do. You can just do your best. Mm. But actually, if you get so stressed out that you can't make it to the exam, that's going to do you no good whatsoever. Mm. So I think throughout life, that's such a good tip because just to try and sort of take a step back and just try and not to get so wrapped up in your daily stress that it stops you doing your job well. You don't seem like a worrier. You manage to sleep, have a calm exterior whenever we see you on the news every night. How do you manage that then? It is like the kind of the swan or you know maybe the ugly duckling with the legs paddling very very fast underneath the surface. Yeah. I mean I think I might segue into another piece of advice, um, which is panicking early. If you get all your worrying done and do all your preparation, you know, that's where my worrying goes is thinking, have I covered every angle in this interview? Have I, you know, prepared every possible outcome of this interview? And once I've done that, I can be calm. So similarly to the exam, when my dad was saying, you know, just turn up to the exam room. Actually, I suppose the other piece of advice is if you're preparing really well and you've worked really steadily, and once you get to the big day, mm. there's nothing else you can do except turn up and perform. I love that. Yeah, that was your second piece of advice, panic early. I've never heard someone say that before, but it makes such that who told you that and how did that come yeah, about? Yeah, this was from a colleague of mine, an old colleague, Lindsay Taylor, who um, sort of helped give me some advice on how to report in the early days at mm. ITN when I'd come from newspapers, so I didn't know how to do TV reporting. And his point was... If you do all the, put, all, put in all the nuts and bolts of your report and you run around and you do all the interviews and you've got it all done, there's no good trying to put it all together in the edit suite, you know, with half an hour to air. You've got to try and panic early, do all that running around and then get, get it in in time for the show, mm. basically. So it's kind of, I suppose it's, you know, there's, they're related pieces of advice, aren't they? But... There's no point stressing out in the moment when you're no. under pressure to perform. You've got to do the stressing earlier and then calm for that hour between yeah. seven and eight. In fact, that's sometimes the most relaxing bit of my day, being really? on air. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that. But I'm interested, seven and eight, you're on air. It's such high pressure. And there's so, I mean, more than ever, there's so much going on in the world, it seems like. How do you stay on top of that much Mm. information? What's your process? Are you reading all the time? I'm constantly reading. Mm. I read as many newspapers, blogs, online news sources as possible. So I do feel that I'm constantly glued to a screen, which has its own stresses. Um, You know, and I read, I love reading history books still. And, you know, I'm reading Ben McIntyre's book at the moment, The Spy and the Traitor. Mm. So it's very interesting with everything that's going on in Russia at the moment. Mm. So, yeah, I'm constantly, constantly reading. I'm constantly feeding my mind. And I suppose the only danger with that is my memory short term is brilliant. You know, I can cram my brain full of 
everything I need to know for that interview I'm doing that night. Mm. But I can't remember what I did last week because <laughs> it's kind of like information overload. Right. So, um, yeah, that is the only danger with that. But, yeah, you've got to be on top of everything that's going on. So even in the holidays, I read at least one paper a day. Right. Is that you so, cutting down just one? Yeah, that's cutting down. <laughs> Any time for Netflix or uh, films? Or... Um, yeah, we, we, we've been watching The Cry. Oh, yeah. Um, we watched good. Bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah, that's the wind down. You know, I do try and when everything's over at the end of the day, um, my husband and I do try and sit down and just watch something for half yeah. an hour. But it's quite often, especially with kids, it's quite often you don't really sit down and watch a whole film mm. from start to finish. I don't know how David Cameron did the box set thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. And be Prime Minister. <laughs> well, maybe that tells yeah, a story. It's not, sure. it's not right there. We'll leave that there. Um, your third piece of advice I really like as well. Um, it's about um, who to make friends with in the office. And you said don't always... Make friends with the chief exec, also their PA is the mm. important person in the office. Yeah, this was um, this was an advice from an old sort of mentor um, called Matthew. Um, Matthew Horseman used to work for The Independent when mm. I was there. And he always said to me, look, it's no good just like dialing up the chief exec of a company because I was a business reporter mm. at the time, so I was covering a lot of media companies. And he said, you know, it's no good just trying to sort of go straight through to the chief exec. You've got to charm everyone around him. Mm. Um, or her it was usually him in those days Um, so you know be nice to the PA because you know the chief exec the PA is not going to put you through to her boss or his boss um, unless you're nice to everyone so you know you can it works in the office as well if you're not very nice to the the junior assistant you know one day that junior assistant could be your boss so you're going to regret it aren't you so there's always time to be polite and decent actually Mm. I mean I I worked in newspapers um, at a time when several tabloid newspapers had quite a fearsome reputation for sort of screaming and yelling in the office fortunately the FT was a very very civilized place to work mostly ITN likewise but I think particularly now when people are so often screaming at each other online there's so many divisions actually just to be to be kind and nice to people is probably the most important piece of advice anyone can ever give. Yeah, and probably not being noted totally all the time. You are on social media. Do you get that screaming at you or mm. and do you ignore it? You... A lot of screaming at me. I I go on Twitter less than I did. Mm. Um, I look at the notifications much less than I did. I do a lot of filters because, frankly, you don't need to be abused and eviscerated, no. you know, um, 24-7. That's not good for anyone's mental health. So I ignore a large proportion of the trolling. And also, who cares what a bot is hurling at you online? You know, really. And who similarly, who cares what someone, you know, who's a sort of spotty teenage boy in a bedroom in California or wherever. I mean, a lot of these taunts are coming from yeah. alt-right people in America. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really care what they think about me, I'm afraid. <laughs> do you find, do you think anecdotally that you get more of it than your male colleagues when you speak to them? I think women generally do. I mean, there has been research to support that, mm. that women get more online abuse. But, um, you know, I think men get it as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure someone like Piers Morgan would say that well. he gets <laughs> a lot of abuse. And obviously, yeah. just it's just pointless, really. I think we need to try and sort of rein back on all of that vitriol online and just try and have a more civilised discussion yeah absolutely today's podcast is sponsored by The Economist 
If you're struggling to keep up in these times of news bombardment, The Economist is a great way to understand what's going on in a world where facts matter more than ever and can be harder than ever to find. The Economist's big selling point is delivering trustworthy news in a world where it's harder than ever to hear above the noise. But it's about more than just economics and finance. They also tackle everything from the environment and science to arts and culture. I personally find the culture section especially helpful. Their cheats guide on economist.com tells you every Everything you need to know about everything from Netflix's latest rom-com to one of my favorite pods Dear Joan and Jerrica. Their Traveller's Bookshelf piece is a great as well for getting inspiration on what book to read next. If you're intrigued they're currently giving away free copies all you need to do is text podcast p-o-d-c-a-s-t to 78070 that's 78070 now. And talking of the men that you work with, Jon Snow gave you your next piece of advice, which I absolutely love, and I think maybe I'm going to start taking on board. <laughs> Ask the filthiest possible question in the nicest yeah. possible way. I mean, he's had an amazing career. He's an absolute titan mm. of uh, broadcasting. So, you know, I'd take any advice from him yeah. that's going. And I do think this one he's brilliant at, because no matter who you're interviewing, I think you can sort of put them at ease and get more out of them if you're asking in a really sort of kind, decent way. Mm. But actually you're asking a really difficult question. Much harder to dodge that question. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've tried to put that into practice. Not always successfully. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like when you're on live TV and then you've got in the back of your head, I'm going to have to ask this in a second, I'm going to have to ask this in a second. What's that pressure feel like and is it hard to... To yeah, that I think I think the difficult thing is making sure you know where you're going with the interview, but also listening to what the interviewee is saying. So they might be taking the interview in a different direction. And you've then got it's like chess in your head thinking, do I want to go down that route now? Or do I want to go where I wanted to go with it and then come back to what they've been saying? And then you've got to remember what they were saying yeah. and make sure you don't sort of drop the ball on something they might have said or maybe they've said something legally contentious you've got to pick up on that mm. so it's kind of a constant movable feast in your head a, a constant chess game in your head and the thing is I mean I read a book by another old boss Andy Marr when I was first starting in telly my trade I think okay. it's called yeah so it's about being a journalist mm. and I remember him saying that he was never 100% happy with any live tv and that I completely agree with that because when you've mm. finished an interview there's always things that you think, oh, I could have done that, could have done this. Quite often you're doing an interview down the line, so it's very difficult to get that sort of engagement with someone. And, you know, if there's a delay on the line, if you interrupt at the wrong time, it can be awkward. So you're very rarely 100% happy. Mm. And I think that is the nature of live TV. Yeah. It's a hazardous business. And of course, these interviews go viral now, don't they? As you know, your infamous interview now with Jordan Peterson. And did that go the way that you'd hoped? Was that, how was that for a chess game? This is asking the difficult question in the filthiest possible way, isn't yeah. it? No, the other way around. The filthiest the possible filthiest. question in yeah. the nicest possible way. Um, I, you know, the thing with that interview was that I was really happy with it at the time. And, you know, we left the studio and both Jordan Peterson and I were happy and mm. chatting and... And it was only afterwards that that all hell broke loose yeah. and that I didn't enjoy at all. So yeah. I think it was a shame, really, that the, the reaction spoilt what had been an interesting and combative discussion. I mean, you know, I do probably about 200 interviews a year. So, 
you know, was it my best of 200 interviews in a year? Probably not. But I've done interviews with, you know, Max Mosley, yeah. you know, um, I'm the Oxfam whistleblower, for example. I've did a doorstep with John Smythe, accused of um, abusing boys, you know, the Church of England guy. Mm. And, you know, all of these things are high pressure and some of them work and some of them don't work so well. Mm. And that's life. Mm. Now in this world, they don't be where everyone wants little sound bites and little interviews and they get retweeted thousands of times. That must be quite a tough position thinking, is yeah. this going to be the next thing? Or do you just try and keep I, that in your head? Yeah, I don't think you can worry about that no. so much. I mean, I think the older you get as well, the the less you're the less you care about the sort of online criticism. I mean, that's a, a dangerous thing to say, perhaps, but I think you have to, especially as a woman in the public eye, you have mm. to care less mm. because otherwise you drive yourself mad sort of analysing, oh, did I do that right? Did I do this right? Mm. In the end, you just got to get on with it and get on with the next interview. And you said that interview and, and going back to the piece of advice about asking the nice possible way was quite combative. How do you draw that? How do you tread that line mm. between kind of like staying calm, but also, you know, making sure you're representing that person at home saying, don't let him get away with that. Yeah, I think that's really difficult. And I think I've evolved in the last few years on that because, mm. for example, I did a, an interview with Milo Yiannopoulos, who was yeah, a sort right. of alt-righty figure. Um, and, you know, I got quite sort of angry in that interview. And I think when all of this sort of new populism started to emerge, I think I think a lot of us in the studio were channeling a lot of the anger that our mm. viewers feel. But after I'd done that for a while, I sort of started to change tack, really, because while that might be good telly, I'm not sure that you get the answers that way. So if I'm interviewing, I mean, all sorts of controversial people I have to interview... I think actually trying to keep calm and ask very incisive questions, sort of forensic really, mm. without losing it, I think that's probably the best yeah. technique. Well, especially people who pride themselves on being provocateurs, that's exactly. what they want from you, isn't it? Um, and, and a good way to stay calm, your fifth piece of advice is all things past. Yeah, Tell me yeah. about this, this is lovely. Well, it's a really a lovely sort of proverb, I guess it is, from um, Lao Tzu, who's a... 6th century, he lived in the 6th century BC, founder of Taoism. Mm. And shall I read the little poem? It's just yeah, really I think little. It's lovely, yeah. And I love this. All things pass. A sunrise does not last all morning. All things pass. A cloudburst does not last all day. All things pass, nor a sunset all night. All things pass. What always changes? Earth, sky, thunder, mountain, water, wind, fire, lake. These change. And if these do not last, do man's visions last? Do man's illusions? Take things as they come. All things pass. Mm. It's lovely. It's really, it's obviously meditative, but yeah. it's very calming. It, I think the repetition of all things pass, it's sort of hypnotic, isn't it? Mm. But also just the simple point that, you know, you can do an interview today, which everybody goes mad about. It's gone tomorrow or, you know, yeah. it might live on online. But, you know, ultimately, none of us are, a permanent nothing nothing lasts forever you have to sort of ground yourself in the moment and what you're doing in that moment mm. and I think particularly as someone who does have a tendency to worry I think that's really important to just sometimes go I'm not going to worry about what's coming later today or yeah. tomorrow I'm going to just enjoy what's happening right now mm. is that something you've come to more recently is it something that you've kind of refined over the years yeah I think I think having children as well that you know 
trying to give them the best possible advice Mm. and trying to help them cope with the world I think and trying to cope with the sort of pressures of work and and home I think sometimes I've that's what I've come to is just that sometimes you have to junk everything else Mm. and just you know for example as a family enjoy going for a walk somewhere or sitting down and watching something all together on the telly you know and I, I'm obsessed with clearing my email inbox every day. Right, okay. I do have to do that by the end of every day, but there'll be times where I think I'm not going to look at my phone for mm. another couple of hours and I'm just going to enjoy what I'm doing. And I think in this world where we're all so busy and frantic, you have to, you have to sometimes refocus on the present. Yeah, it's hard, but yeah. it's rewarding. It makes you feel much better. Yeah. And your final piece of good advice was from the uh, late, great Tessa Jowell. Um, was she a close friend of yours or was she someone you interviewed a lot? Yeah, I mean, I started just, I knew her as an MP and a minister um, in the Labour government and she was always so supportive of young female journalists like mm. I was then. Um, and such a sort of, you know, supportive, um, yeah, feminist with a small F, you know, she was just real part of the sisterhood. And... Then, you know, when I had kids, she took a real interest in the kids. And I always remember introducing her to the kids when they were babies. And she gave them books. And, you know, she was just so warm and full of life. And it was just so sad when she passed away prematurely, really. Um, And, you know, I'm off to her memorial service in a minute, which I think will be a a celebration of her life. And a really incredible woman. Someone who actually broke down barriers. I mean, we were talking earlier about the divisions and the vitriol at the moment. That is something that was anathema to Tessa. Yeah. You know, she she was brilliant at bringing together politicians from all sides. That's how she managed to get support for the Olympics. Mm. Um, and I think it's worth remembering what she stood for at the mm. moment when everything's so divisive. Mm. Absolutely. And she, the kind of, she brought that personality with her as well and it was about her whole life. And she said to you, I think your piece of advice is that don't go to bed in an argument and tell your kids you love them all the time. That's... Yeah, I really remember having lunch with her when the kids were quite little and I, I asked a lot of people for advice on, you know, how to handle, um, you know, balancing work and life. And I really remember her saying, you know, it's incredible. You, you tell your kids every day that you love them and it's still not enough. You have to keep on telling them. Never think that you're saying I love you too often. Mm. And I just think that was such a Tessa piece of advice and it's so true. Yeah. You know, you can never overdo the love and affection with your children. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> she seems like a wonderful lady. Mm. Um, you're, we like to finish on a piece of bad advice you've been given. <laughs> Should start with that. I mean, everybody says, you finish on a negative. Yeah. No, but it's normally a kind of a funny note to end on because people spout advice constantly and it's not mm. always for you. So tell us about yours. Yeah, there's a positive angle to this as well. I, I had lunch, when I was media correspondent, I had lunch with a big broadcasting boss who shall remain nameless and he said to me you know you'd be great in telly I was on newspapers at the time he said you'd be great in telly if you straighten your teeth and straighten your hair (laughs) so so I did straighten my teeth because I did have quite sticky outy teeth and they always bugged me and when I had enough money to do it I straightened them Um, but I didn't straighten my hair because the corkscrew curls are sort of part of me. There's nothing yeah. I can do about them. Well, I could straighten them, but, you know. A, long, like yeah. a lot of effort. I think. Yeah, and also the hairdresser did it once in the salon, and, and God, I just looked like a different person. Yeah. I didn't like <laughs> the way I looked. So that's part of me. And it is tricky on telly sometimes because curls can look messy, mm. and I spend quite a lot of time sort of teasing them into place. But it's part of me, and there aren't that many curly 
headed people on screen. No. So, you know, I want to blaze a trail for the curly headed people of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We've all got friends, haven't we, have curly hair and they're like, oh, I should straighten it. And you're like, yeah. Everyone else loves it when you don't have it. So I'm sure you get a lot of that as well. Yeah, well, I, when I was growing up, I wanted to be Jerry Hall with long, gorgeous oh, yeah. blonde hair, but it wasn't to be, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's, and it's your, it's you, isn't it? I mean, just from seeing you on TV every night, that's your look. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's my look. It is. Yeah. Nick Robinson's got his glasses. I've well, got my curls. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever see that person now and say, have you ever said to them, kept the hair or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you always sort of think back to how you were as a child and things you worried about. And, you know, I had really thick NHS glasses and I couldn't wait to get rid of them. And as soon as I could afford to get lenses, I did. Um, But I think, yeah, if I look back on the things I worried about as a child and I wish I hadn't, Mm. I think it goes back to the proverb, doesn't it? Yeah. I wish I'd known that proverb when I was 12. You always... (laughs) It's a great one for kids, isn't it? Yeah. Because that is when everything feels like the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's not, no. generally. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Cathy. That was Thank brilliant. You. <laughs> Thank you so much to Cathy, a great guest and a bloody brilliant woman herself. I'm sure you'll agree. Her book, Bloody Brilliant Women, is out now. Today's podcast was sponsored by The Economist. For your free copy of The Economist, just text PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to 78070. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please do subscribe, rate us, review us. It really helps spread the word. We look forward to seeing you next week for more advice from women worth listening to.